You're listening to CISD on SOAS Radio. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back here in London and at SOAS in particular. Now, you will have seen in the different subjects we'll be dealing with that they vary a great deal from human rights to disarmament to other political issues to Brexit and so on. And when we talk about recent political developments in South Africa, which we do today, my one difficulty would be, of course, that I don't know how much knowledge you have about South Africa and its transition to democracy and so on. So I will speak, if you wish, in a bit of a few slots so you get bits of information and then you ask questions and then we can integrate what, what we're saying. So then, historically speaking, of course, the historical context is that South Africa was originally a Dutch and British colony. And uh, at that time, there were people who were English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking. By the way, Afrikaans is the same as uh, Flemish, because the uh, Dutch and Germans who met in South Africa developed the language. And the same accident of history occurred much earlier in Belgium. So sometimes when we speak Afrikaans, those in Belgium think we've taken the trouble to learn their language. It was very useful in our anti-apartheid campaign when I appeared on television and so on in Belgium. And then people, the Flemish people tend to support the Afrikaners and therefore apartheid. So when we were on radio or television talking to them in what they considered was their language, and they thought we had taken the trouble to learn the language, then we got a lot of sympathy. (laughs) But uh, life works like that. So at that time, when anybody, if you look at the books at the time and so on, anybody spoke about the race conflict or the race problem, um, they were merely talking about relations between English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking. And I won't go into too much detail, but the kind of things they were fighting about is whether (coughs) when you have taps in the bathrooms and so on, whether you should put cold and hot in both languages. And that became, those things became big political issues. Of course, we had uh, General Smuts, who was in the war cabinet as well, and <coughs> the United Party, which was the English-speaking party, uh, in power until 1948. In 1948, the Africana Party took, uh, took power. And we've had, in effect, although very little literature describes this as that, but those of us who are South Africans and experienced it, they really feel the best way to characterize that is that from 48 to 94, we had in effect a one-party state. So the same party ruled all the time. Now, a, a word or two about <coughs> the actual um, program of the National Party. Some of the leaders of the National Party were arrested during the war as Nazi sympathizers including a man called Foster, who later became Prime Minister of South Africa. And that is because their own uh, document was quite close, so not far from Mein Kampf. And they believe, of course, in racial superiority and so on. And the Dutch Reformed Church is the main church, in effect, saying to people that, why are we in Africa, we from Europe and white people have come here, our mission is to try and create uh, as many Christians as possible and save these people from their savagery and backwardness and so on, the kind of language they use normally. So then we had, <coughs> in 1910, 
they, they were republics, Africana republics and English-speaking republics. And then they got together. And in 1910, they formed the Union of South Africa. Uh, it was also a dominion of the Commonwealth, so a member of the Commonwealth. And the Union of South Africa, because of the political divisions between the English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking, <coughs> we therefore had to have three capitals. So the first capital, or one capital, is in Cape Town which is the legislative capital. So Parliament meets in Cape Town. The other capital is Pretoria, which is the administrative political capital, if you wish, because all the civil servants and all the government departments are based there. And then the third one, which is a bit unusual, only in our case, is the uh, judicial capital. So the judiciary is in Bloemfontein. Uh, part of the problem of these capitals is that <laughs> if you happen to be like me, we are a minority Indian population, then according to the South African uh, constitution at the time, Indians were not allowed to live in the Orange Free State. It was an entire Afrikaner or African area. And the same, by the way, in Namibia, which South Africa was ruling for the United Nations. So if you're an Indian and you had a court case against the government, you had to travel into the province in the morning and leave again before dark. Otherwise, you were illegally there. You could be arrested. So what many people did, I had relatives who were fighting the Group Areas Act when I was a child. So people would collect money who were affected by the law <coughs> and would uh, go to court there. They had to make plans well in advance. And when they arrived there, and if they found that the case went on the following day, <laughs> They left Bloemfontein, went across the border into the Transvaal, as it was then, and then they would drive around and look at the shops and see, you know, which has an Indian name, and then you'd go knock at the door, and you'd say, I am such and such, and I come from here, and they would assume that you need a bed <laughs> and food. <laughs> so they would be welcomed into their homes, and you'd stay there till the next day when you had a court case the second day or the third day. Of course, if you had a longer stay, you also tried to make arrangements because no hotel was available for non-whites. And we were called non-whites. By the way, the terminology is very important even today in global history. You had on the one side whites. And then, you know, the whole way they looked at everything was here are whites, they have positive attributes and then you have non-whites. So in South Africa, which is a classical one of, of racial division, but all colonial history is full of it. So you were actually negative people. You had no rights, no, nothing positive for you. <laughs> you were only looked upon in relation to the whites. So you are a non-white. So that is how <coughs> we had those categories, and so we didn't have hotels in South Africa, so you couldn't stay there. So these are, the, and then now one terrible thing that President Mandela did, one of our best lawyers in the country was an Indian. He passed away now, and he, he was also the uh, Chief Justice of Botswana, because the neighboring countries would also appoint people who are anti-apartheid and able. And he was Chief Justice, and after uh, 94, when the democratic government was installed, President Mandela made him the Chief Justice. And I remember him cursing President Mandela to say, I always didn't want to stay in Bloemfontein. And now I've changed, he's put me as an Indian in Bloomington. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. He hates the place, you know, <laughs> because of how you grow up. Anyway, coming back, <clears throat> in 1910, the Union of South Africa was formed, and in 1948, the Nationalist Party took over. Uh, and 1948 to 94, if 
we have time and wish to read about it, you will see that they had a deliberate policy of, if you wish, affirmative action, which was to advance Afrikaners. Afrikaners were not uh, very senior in government. Uh, <coughs> they were not uh, very much aware, much of the world, or more country people. And so what the government did is deliberately and systematically create jobs for Afrikaners. And it was done quite blatantly. I mean, in the civil service and so on, they would say, you must now have only Afrikaners appointed. Some English speaking would be. And the other thing about uh, Afrikanerdom was that they were also uh, very bad on uh, gender rights. So women were treated very, very badly. Uh, women in the department that I joined after 94, <coughs> the Department of Foreign Affairs, we had uh, Afrikaner women working there who had been working there for a long time. They could not be posted because they agreed to work there to be headquarters bound because they had to look after their husbands. So you can't have a woman diplomat you know, sent abroad because the husband would be inconvenienced and so on. So these were also part of the Afrikaner values of the time. <coughs> so we inherited quite a lot of people who were not uh, very well educated or very well versed in life, and they were remaining in the Department of Foreign Affairs. So when I went there, I found these people there. So in this period, <coughs> you had uh, the South African government establishing special banks, uh, special arrangements made to give economic power to Afrikaners so that they could uh, get loans and buy things and so on. Now you may have read <coughs> about apartheid and various versions of apartheid and so on, but uh, when the United Nations discussed it over many decades, they eventually came to a conclusion that apartheid constituted a crime against humanity and the General Assembly decisions to that effect. Now, I'll be very frank with you <coughs> in all my discussion so that you get a perspective of what it is that we experienced and how we looked at it. When you look at the whole history of South Africa from 48 or around then when apartheid was systematized and imposed on people, right up to 94, and we used to say that in meetings because I lived abroad and here and I was secretary of the British anti-apartheid movement, so we went all over the world to many political meetings and so on. We used to explain in detail, we don't have time today, but I can go into it if you wish, that uh, apartheid was supposed to be a crime against humanity, but our experience in those years, until 94, was that it was, racism was not a crime if uh, the victims were black. So in other words, <coughs> the Nazi Germany's decision at the end of Nazi Germany that racism is a crime against humanity didn't apply to us. We just happened to be victims of white rulers and that is something we had to accept. So we were never treated any differently, nor were the issues treated. And this was one of the big problems for us because <coughs> in the 60s Africa became independent, most of Africa, most of the decolonized world was over. In the United States, you had very great consciousness about uh, racial discrimination, and you had the whole black power movement and so on developing. Uh, riots, indeed, in the U.S., which uh, tempered the U.S. approach to race relations a lot. Affirmative action developed there, too, as an insurance policy, not to have more riots and so on. So there was a global concern about race relations, and they looked at South Africa as the worst example of what was happening. And then when President Mandela was released from prison <coughs> in 1990, 
people put a lot of hope in uh, ANC and the president, and they thought that we could set an example to the world as to how different racial groups should live together, because we have people of different cultures and traditions. First of all, we have, of course, a white population. If you want to divide it, it's mainly between the English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking, roughly half, and then half and half. And then you have the so-called colored, terrible term, colored people, or people uh, of mixed blood from original contact with whites, and then they produce this uh, population, and they just call them colored people. Uh, <clears throat> so they uh, have, of course, some historical links with the white population. And then you have uh, Indian people, or Asian like me, and we were taken to South Africa by the British at the time when they wanted uh, Indian workers to work on the sugar fields. The history is a bit different. In East Africa, they worked on uh, the railways. And so <coughs> people were brought in. And Mahatma Gandhi got involved, too, as a result of this, because when Indians were taken to South Africa, they were given all kinds of promises. You know, if you work for five years, you would get this reward at the end. If you work for 20 years, you'd get a piece of land, all kinds of things. But the British, as we said, uh, they always did, never kept their promises. So Mahatma Gandhi was in South Africa and took up some court cases and so on <coughs> to try and help the Indian population. And then you have the majority population, the African population, uh, who are, of course, from different tribal origins. But many of them are detribalized because of industrial development and the development of the mines. So you'll have a Zulu, a Khoza, who are working in the same place, some even speaking the other language, because where they are living, they're no longer speaking their own language. The apartheid regime tried to reverse this, tried to re-tribalize, de-tribalized Africans. And through this came out the so-called Bantustans, that they wanted to create this fiction that the Zulus would be independent in their own areas and other Africans would be independent in their areas. These were little strips of land that would have no political independence given to them, but it was just that they could develop along their own lines, as they said, in those areas and so on. So now, <clears throat> when you look at this history, uh, you also see, of course, one of the longest periods of nonviolent history in the world in South Africa. Because it started with Mahatma Gandhi's approach of nonviolent resistance. Uh, that was, uh, the Indian Congress was formed before the African National Congress. So when the African National Congress was formed just over 100 years ago, it was influenced a great deal by the Indian Congress. So you see the policies of the Indian Congress, which were nonviolent, were also taken over by the ANC. And until 1960-61, the ANC remained uh, nonviolent and pacifist. All its campaigns were nonviolent. And that's partly why Chief Lutuli, who was the president of the ANC, was given the Nobel Peace Prize in 1960-61. I say 60-61 because in one of the years they didn't give a Nobel Prize. So in 61 they awarded the 60 Nobel Prize to him. So <clears throat> if you look at the whole history of South Africa, it is filled with this kind of racism and of course a large number of political prisoners because if you oppose the government, you ended up in prison. So we had a very large number of political prisoners in the country. Now by 1990, because of international pressure, <clears throat> and through the anti-apartheid movement, we organized uh, two very big uh, music events at uh, Wembley Stadium. 
uh, with all the world's top artists taking part. Uh, the first one was Mandela's 70th birthday in 1988 when he was still in prison. We filled Wembley Stadium and it was shown every country's television network. So it reached uh, millions of people. And then when he was released in uh, February 1990, <coughs> I happened to be invited by President Kaunda of Zambia, which is a neighboring country, and he invited uh, Mandela, who had just been released a month before. And some of us were brought there just to talk to President Mandela. I mean, I was very embarrassed because there was nothing, no role that I should play. But they had the uh, Prime Minister of Malaysia, for example, was representing the Commonwealth. They had Yasser Arafat <coughs> from the PLO, some African leaders, and so on, Canadian Foreign Minister, a number of personalities who were involved in various ways to fight apartheid were all brought together to Zambia, and they met uh, President Mandela and asked him various questions as to the future of the country. Anyway, after that, at that time, Namibia also became independent. This is quite important because Rhodesia or Zimbabwe was a country that people expected <coughs> would uh, become independent after Namibia. But what happened was that the armed struggle in Zimbabwe reached such a point that Mrs. Thatcher was virtually forced in the end at one of the Commonwealth conferences to agree to call a constitutional conference here at Lancaster House, and then Zimbabwe emerged out of that. So Zimbabwe in 1980 was independent. Now Namibia, South Africa, Zimbabwe were all together working as a white power system <coughs> to uphold racism in that region and resist the advance of African freedom. So Zimbabwe was already free, when Namibia became free, uh, and I was fortunate to be invited to all those independent celebrations of both countries, uh, but after we came back <coughs> uh, to, to London, after Namibian independence, I remember at the uh, rally in Trafalgar Square saying that now we're seeing the beginning of the end of apartheid, because they cannot continue anymore. Very briefly, <coughs> The apartheid state, because it had to deal with security for the whites and was highly militarized, they spent huge amounts of money on uh, the military budget, they uh, could not hold on to political control. And so at that time, in a few things that I wrote, I described South Africa as a garrison state because everything was based on security. In fact, here where I was studying at University College, I got <coughs> one of the departments there to help me while I was working with the anti-apartheid movement as well. And they showed how the South African roads that were being developed were developed with a, the military bases in mind. You would have military bases here, you'd have white areas there, you'd have black areas here, and they had to move very rapidly in case the blacks moved into the white areas. The whole approach and image was we are facing the Svartkhafar, the black danger. So the blacks would come out of their homes at night and go and kill African, uh, white people overnight. So they wanted to take the military. So you find another peculiar thing, and if you visit South Africa today, you can have a look at it. The highways are also very wide. And at that time, the traffic that we had on the roads didn't justify that. But that was also to land aeroplanes on it, and as straight as possible. So everything was built around security and keeping, and remember most of the people in the military were white. 
they had a small group later of Africans, but they didn't have much uh, power because they were afraid that if they brought in people from the oppressed group, they would turn on, on the oppressor group. So with this garrison state, it couldn't hold on to power. And towards the end, the British and the Americans uh, got together with the South Africans in a whole lot of private discussions. And in effect said to them, <coughs> with the South Africans, you cannot hold on to the present system because you will have a hot revolution. And if you have a hot revolution, there will be massive violence. And of course, the Western countries had huge investments in South Africa gold, diamonds, motor industry, a whole lot of things. So they didn't want that, and of course a human cost too, that it would create some kind of race conflict and race war in South Africa, and it would have international repercussions. So the settlement was arrived at, and it was essentially a compromise. The African people, <coughs> their movements and so on, could not muster enough political support and strength to destroy the apartheid system to fight it. The whites could not continue with their power system, but they still had power, because they had all the military power. So if we went for some kind of uh, physical confrontation, then the country would burn, and you would have enormous destruction, the human life and so on. So this is what uh, <coughs> preoccupied the ANC, which was the main political movement, and Nelson Mandela, and so Negotiations went on from 1990 to 94. At several points, they almost uh, ended because at the same time, the apartheid regime was engaged in a whole lot of political conflicts and giving uh, arms to people who were against ANC. So that resulted in a lot of killing, particularly in KwaZulu Natal, <coughs> with Chief Butelezi being the main supporter of the apartheid regime. So in 94, when we eventually got there, it was after a lot of difficulties and lots of crisis. But the ANC had to recognize that they cannot take over power, and the government also had to recognize that they couldn't continue with that power structure. And they were advised by their allies abroad <coughs> not to persist. So we had 94, and then a couple of years after that, we had the South African Constitution drawn up, mainly by uh, ANC leaders who worked very hard. Some were studying this for two, three years or more before that. So people commend our constitution as being among the best in the world. And the constitution is. We also have, for example, a Bill of Human Rights, uh, which you cannot change. Parliament cannot change it. So it remains there as a moral edifice. And anyone can go to the constitutional court to claim that they're being violated against, and the court will decide. Indeed, very early on in President Mandela's uh, term, uh, he was taken to the Constitutional Court, he lost the case, and he praised the court for the work it did. So there was a different atmosphere at that time that we must abide by the laws. We also have something which we call Chapter 9 provisions, so that in the Chapter 9 of the Constitution, we have created a public protector, for example. <coughs> We've created a Human Rights Commission. And this public protector has uh, very wide powers. Now, that came up <coughs> recently, <coughs> if you follow South African developments, over the Inkantla case. And Inkantla is the house that President uh, Zuma decided to have built. You're entitled, if you're a president, to have a house to have it built and to have security things with it. And then they remain there even later. 
when you leave. So it becomes a kind of gift, actually, which is wrong. But anyway, that's a provision. It allows it. So in that building, there was a lot of corruption. And they built all kinds of things they didn't need. Uh, you know, an area for cattle, an area for chicken. Uh, built a big swimming pool, which is not needed. And then they said, no, it's for the fire hydrants, you know, later. So eventually the president said, I have nothing to do with it. The civil servants were responsible. They shouldn't have done it, and so on. But anyway, this report of the public protector on Inkandla was very penetrating and very good. And it required the president to pay back money to the state. Uh, that was unprecedented. Never happened in our country, also not in many other countries. So uh, he had to pay back. That was no, nothing like the total cost of the operation. But it was a sizable amount, and he, he paid it back. But in that engagement with Parliament and so on, in the courts, uh, you found uh, decisions taken by the courts that the president didn't uphold the Constitution. He acted in violation of the Constitution. That was the first big break with uh, civil society and uh, President Zuma, that he actually violated the Constitution. And he is the one who should be protecting the Constitution, goes against his oath and so on. Now, that is one phase. We had uh, quite a lot of cases also coming up about, uh, we have a lot of state enterprises <coughs> uh, for electricity, ESCOM, for railways, another one, and so on. Uh, so these state enterprises were then also corrupted through a family which migrated to South Africa from India. The name is Guptas. So people use this in normal vocabulary in South Africa. We don't want Guptas to run our country. So they went from India to South Africa. First came in with a lot of computer companies and set them up. And then later, through a network of bribery and corruption of people close to the president, the president's son, the uh, president's family, <coughs> and others that the president knew, what they did is they used the state uh, enterprises to milk the, uh, the government. So these enterprises would have billions in terms of, of rents, <coughs> and they would find different ways of getting a contract. They would be paid uh, half a billion for a contract for work that they never did, and then they would be paid that money. So all this came out with a whole lot of emails. We have a very good civil society in South Africa, and quite brave people who've uh, taken risks to say things and expose things. And so... <coughs> After Nkandla's uh, emails, uh, hundreds of emails were discovered uh, and, and they showed these links. So the public really literally hate the Guptas and say they need to leave the country. <coughs> By the way, they also got their nationality uh, improperly. They didn't stay for the period they had to stay. Uh, but there is a provision for applying earlier, and they applied earlier, and the Home Minister just gave, signed off. Uh, so that too, people are questioning now. They've had their bank accounts closed <coughs> by all the banks that work in South Africa and internationally, because they've been dealing with a whole lot of uh, suspicious uh, trade. So they couldn't function in South Africa. They took that to court, lost that as well, saying that the bank has a right to decide on its customers. And uh, they're still functioning. They bought uh, TV stations. They bought newspapers. They've just a few months ago sold the TV station and the newspapers to one of the former ANC people who supports them for virtually no money at all. 
So that one runs a propaganda thing. We have three big TV stations. That is the third one. And it, it runs constantly to discredit uh, <coughs> anyone who challenges Suma. Uh, so very few people watch it. Some watch it out of entertainment and to find out what they're saying. But otherwise, it doesn't have that much influence over the, over the country. So we've had this uh, in Kandla case. We've had the public protector's report. And she devised this language that we have state capture. That the state is captured by people with money and they are determining things. Now, the, we've had instances such as uh, former <coughs> uh, deputy finance minister being called by the Guptas to their palatial home and being told, uh, would you like to be foreign minister? And the man said, no, you know, I don't uh, discuss this with you. It's up to my president to decide and all that. So this came out. And then we found that uh, two weeks or so uh, after that, the minister was changed. So there was going to be a change, and these people knew about it. You know? Guptas. Guptas, yes. So the Guptas have known a lot, and then they've also offered people money. Uh, you want to be foreign minister, you'll get, what, 600 million a year, plus so much, you know, in addition. So it just become because they wanted to milk the, the, the state. <clears throat> and the, foreign, the finance minister plays a very big part in allocating the contracts, in approving those of the state enterprises, and so on. So, they, all that is now in the public domain. People have that. Uh, then, uh, <coughs> some years ago, just before President Zuma became president, he had a number of uh, charges against him, hmm? criminal charges. And then uh, there was a report that there had been a conversation between one of the senior people who, support, who was in the Thabo Mbeki government, the government before, and they had spoken to the public <coughs> prosecutor and so on. And therefore, those charges are tainted because they were initiated through political intervention. And that held the day. So they didn't go ahead and prosecute him. Okay. Now the opposition parties and civil societies and others have taken the matter to court just a few months ago. And the uh, highest court in the country has said those charges remain. Charges remain doesn't mean that you're going to be convicted or charged. <coughs> it remains that the prosecution authority have to institute them. <laughs> so although legally they remain, they cannot be withdrawn, the authorities that are supposed to initiate the process by which you are charged have not done so yet. And those guys are also appointed by President Zuma. So we are learning a lot that having the best constitution in the world doesn't help you if you have all these powers centered on the president, and the president runs by <coughs> majority party. We don't have a constituency system. Okay? So when you vote, you vote for the ANC all over the country. That total number can show you the ANC and the majority. Parliament then meets. The majority party says, we are recommending X, Y, and Z as president, and the parliament will agree, because the parliament will have majority ANC members. And that's how Zuma was appointed and all the other presidents as well. So to remove the president is very difficult through impeachment. But now the opposition have had six, yeah, six uh, uh, no confidence votes. Uh, the, the seven, sorry, one more afterward. The six were, of, uh, any, uh, no one expected it to succeed because the ANC has a very big majority. However, recently, as a result of all this crisis, you've also had the ANC 
veterans and stalwarts. Okay, about now just under 300 people. And they represent, and members of it are very senior people in the ANC, people who were charged with Mandela in the Rigonia trial. Only three were alive a few months ago. Then the, the best known, Ahmed Kathrada, died, so it's only two now. And they are also members of this Veterans and Stalwarts Group. And the Veterans and Stalwarts Group has said that Zuma must resign, and he, he cannot continue. So here are ANC people who have a long history of struggle in the anti-apartheid movement and the ANC who have now formed a coalition within the ANC to demand that Zuma should leave. So it's quite a powerful uh, group. I'm unfortunately missing one of its meetings now because I'll be abroad. <coughs> but uh, that group had influence over the ANC parliamentarians and so in the last no confidence vote some 20 ANC members for the first time seem to have voted with the opposition. It was the first time the Constitutional Court said it's up to the Speaker to decide whether she should have a confidential vote, in other words, private vote. You know, you just sign a piece of paper and nobody knows which side you voted on. First time it's been demanded in the South African uh, uh, <coughs> uh, Parliament. Uh, parliamentary chairperson uh, was ANC, said no, she couldn't do it didn't have the right to do it. The court then said, no, you have the discretion to do it. Now, the problem is, if she hadn't allowed this private one, there would have been another court case, and she would have been exposed. She's also competing for the presidency's post, one of the six. So she also wanted to improve her record vis-a-vis -vis <laughs> so she would do that. So anyway, <coughs> uh, this uh, was, was, was done. We have uh, <coughs> people even call, you know, uh, Zupta, you know, in terms of Guptas, and you have Zuma, <laughs> so they've coined phrases. And everywhere, we've had big demonstrations, the trade unions, the opposition parties, civil society. And on one day, when there's no confidence vote took place, with, as I say, about 20 ANC members possibly joining the opposition, we're just counting the numbers, and that is how it shows that. And there were nine abstentions. It was the biggest vote against him and from people of his own party. So this is quite uh, remarkable. And then the ANC itself has the National Executive Committee. They have also had a motion before them to say Zuma must leave. And members of the present government have voted to ask him to leave. And they've not been fired. So they have some power and influence <coughs> in the country. Uh, then some have been fired. We've had the saga of the finance minister. We had a very good, we have, we've had good finance ministers in South Africa since the change. <clears throat> but then we found that one Nene, a very good uh, finance minister, was fired overnight. But the international community had a lot of confidence in him and he ran the country very efficiently. <laughs> and then, uh, this was in December 2015, and then the president appointed an unknown MP, Van Royen, to be the finance minister over the weekend. The ANC national executive rebelled, went to see him. They're not accepting this. This guy can't uh, be. So he's the shortest finance minister, I think, was there for two days so, for the weekend. And then by Monday, they appointed uh, Pravin, Pravin Gordon. Now, Pravin Gordon and before been working in the finance ministry, very well respected all over the world, 
who was put in again and had the support of those who criticized uh, Zuma. So Zuma was forced to appoint him. Kept him there, <coughs> and then in the end, <laughs> he said, uh, Zuma said that he had a confidential uh, intelligence report to show that this finance minister was collaborating with the Western countries to organize a coup or to undermine the South African government. So he recalled him from an international trip <coughs> where he was talking to bankers and people abroad about the economy, and when he arrived in South Africa, he fired him. So that meant that the currency went down the second time. The first time with that finance minister, now even more. So we've been taken to the cleaners <coughs> all over. The finance, uh, international finance bodies are rating us now to junk status. So it's difficult to raise loans. And if you do, of course, the interest rates are very high. Uh, then Fitch, ra Fitch ratings also went down. And so economic growth <coughs> in 2016 was 0.3%. They say in 2017 it will be slightly better. But we, our backs are against the wall. We don't think we're going to get very far. So the president now faces, if they go ahead, 170 charges. Criminal charges, uh, 178 actually there, and uh, whether <coughs> the different people are supposed to take uh, action on it will do so. I do not know, but the political leaders are using the courts a great deal, so they will use the courts. So one thing about our institutions is both the public protector and the court, the judicial system, has come out really tops. The chief justice was appointed by Zuma. Everybody thought he'd be in his pocket. And he made a scathing judgment on Encantla. <coughs> and now on, on the charges. That the charges remain and they have to do it. Time's passing, so I should just let you know that in this process of the Guptas and so on, <coughs> we've also had this big company, KPMG, auditing firm, okay? They've also been involved in the corruption. They, this Guptas bought a milk farm, huh? cows, produce milk in the free state, took 30 million from there, used it, diverted money through KPMG, and used it for a huge Indian wedding in South Africa. <coughs> and they flew people by charter planes from India to South Africa. That's a fantastic wedding. So KPMG are in trouble. They've had to pay back some money. They're in trouble internationally. Here in Britain, uh, Lord Hain, who's a <clears throat> friend of ours has been taking matters in the House of Lords and saying that British companies who also dealt with the Guptas should be looked into because Britain should not be supporting <clears throat> financial institutions which are corrupted in this way to break the law in a Commonwealth country. So where that will get to, I do not know, but the focus is on them. The United States investigators have also now picked on some of the companies in South Africa who have been involved in, in corruption. <clears throat> so there are some possibilities. It's unprecedented and things uh, move slowly. So we are living in through a terrible time in South Africa with our background in history. <clears throat> um, we had leaders in the period with uh, Mandela and Thabo Mbeki. Nobody thought of them as being corrupt in any way. Maybe they made political mistakes with no corruption. But with the Zuma presidency, <coughs> which is he's coming to the end of his second term in two years, uh, five-year terms. So after that, what will happen, no one knows. So everyone is hoping now that the new president of the ANC would be elected soon. 
will be a person who would oppose these things and that will become a signal <coughs> to take away authority from Zuma at this moment. Because everybody will then focus that things are changing and this one will do the following. How much he'll clean up, I do not know. The favorite is the uh, deputy president of the country, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. He's a businessman. He was in the ANC. He was a trade unionist, a well-known trade unionist, but he's now a multimillionaire. You see, one of the tragedies of South Africa is that when we changed, the big companies to survive there and decided that they would have black empowerment, black economic empowerment. So they picked individuals and they gave them millions of shares. So people overnight were created into millionaires who never had money before. <laughs> so he is one of them. And there are a few others like that who've been made into <coughs> millionaires because of this change. So whether he will win, there are six candidates uh, or not. Nobody knows. There's the deputy president, Cyril Ramaphosa. Now there is the president's former wife. She divorced him, by the way. <coughs> She's also a candidate, and she has been chosen by him. But in the past, she's disagreed with him fundamentally. She joined the Thabo Mbeki ticket when at an ANC conference some years ago, Thabo Mbeki was a candidate against Zuma, but she joined the Mbeki ticket and not the Zuma ticket. Then <clears throat> we have the Speaker of the Parliament, a lady, who up to now has been pro-Zuma, but now had this uh, other issue, Baleka uh, then we have Lindy Vesisulu. She is really well known because her parents are very well known in South Africa. They have a very good record in the history of the ANC. And then the treasurer of the ANC was a dark horse. He might uh, emerge as the compromised ones, William Kesey. And a former premier of a province, uh, Matthew Sposa. I don't think he stands much chance. So at the moment, there's this tussle going on. And the way you elect is through the ANC provincial delegates. Uh, so it did, and Natal has the largest number of ANC members in that way, Mpumalanga is a second. And then <coughs> you did look at all the provinces and tally them, and then that person. So that conference is due in December, but it may be postponed because there are questions about the representatives who are elected to go there from the different ones. So they may go to court. In KwaZulu Natal, they would of course say that was not a representative meeting, there were procedures that were not correct. So it's possible the December meeting doesn't take place. So there's a lot of tension <coughs> in the country. Sorry, I've gone beyond time. Let me just conclude with a few things. We have a very high rate of unemployment. Uh, no one has actual figures, 27, 30%, and mainly young people who don't have work. We have a very high rate of crime, increasing all the time. We have a lot of poverty. We can't uh, get over it. We haven't up to now. The government has done a lot of things up to now. There's free water, free electricity, a certain amount for every household. Uh, and then also we give uh, a lot of grants to families. Uh, so most of the income to overcome poverty is through the grant system. Of course, this makes people dependent on the state, which in itself has, uh, <coughs> has different sort of problems. We've had uh, some other cases you may have heard of which are uh, difficult to work with, and that is that we decided to leave the International Criminal Court. We were among the first to join it. And we had special meetings in Africa to say everyone should join it. But then there was a case of a uh, Sudanese president coming to South Africa for OAU meeting, and then they wanted South Africa to arrest him. 
And what South Africa said is that we have a treaty with the OAU to give immunity for African summits. So we cannot violate that if the International Criminal Court tells us. It's the first time this kind of case occurred, you know, so which takes precedence. So they decided to let him leave the country and not arrest him. And then a South African court found that this was improper. They should have arrested him. The International Criminal Court also found that. So South Africa decided to leave the International Criminal Court. What will happen in future, I do not know. The International Criminal Court has asked South Africa to rejoin. Uh, one or two African countries have also left the International Criminal Court. If you look at the history of the Criminal Court, you can make a very strong case to say that it has acted unfairly on Africa. Most of the people charged are African. Uh, they wouldn't dare many other countries. I mean, nobody would charge anyone in Israel, for example, <laughs> no matter what kind of crimes they committed. So this has been a complaint in many of the meetings. But many of us believe that if there are these problems, you remain inside and change the system. You don't leave it. Uh, because unless you create another structure within the African continent, which can be the substitute, the alternative for such trials to go on. So we have a, a lot of fear, uncertainty, and difficulties in the country. And uh, this is just giving you uh, snippets of uh, different bits of information as to where we've got to as a result of uh, the terrible things that have happened in the past. Uh, well, it, it's <coughs> happened since Zuma took over, but he still has two more years to go until the end of, of 2019. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. That was quite a comprehensive, fascinating, long view. Uh, of, of recent developments in uh, South Africa and where we stand today. Um, before I go into, I have a lot of, as you saw, I was mm -hmm. taking some notes, I had various questions, but I'll, I'll leave it for the floor to first, I mean, if you have any points of the way questions, please. Thank you. Um, <coughs> I was wondering, with regards to apartheid, um, was it as strong everywhere in the country, or were there also areas where people were just kind of breaking the law and oh. not really <coughs> going a risk of being caught? Well, you see, originally you had areas where Indians, Africans, coloured people would live close by, not together, but close by. Only whites would have their own areas. But as the National Party got into power and so on, they systematically uh, created more segregation. So they intensified the apartheid system. So there was no way. I mean, I, for example, under apartheid, if you were to visit South Africa and I met you in a building like this, we'd be committing a crime because the building has a roof and so on. We can meet outside. So that was a strict as uh, <coughs> you could get. Of course, they couldn't follow everybody. Yeah. People met secretly, particularly political people and so on. But it was definitely uh, segregation at every point. And the Fervour government which took over was systematically to do it in every part of life. And the worst thing was really through things like the Bantu Education Act, where Africans were not allowed to learn about the French Revolution and so on. And in there he said that it would be unfair to teach African things which they could not live in the country. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't teach them anything about that. 
I was also wondering um, if the public protector, do they run any risks of repercussions? For instance, Tulima Masela, who um, published these two reports about Nkandla and Sankitcha, um, did she run any risks politically or maybe even physically as a person? Yeah. The previous public protector resigned just about a year ago, her period is over. <coughs> so she can't have another term, seven year term. She is really the outstanding public protector. The new one we have, many people have some doubts about credibility and so on, because in some cases she's taken up issues which really should not be matters for the public protector. So the original one was very brave, she just didn't care and uh, acted independently. You see it in her documents and so on. Uh, and that was very good for the country. <coughs> and she's applauded. I mean, people even publicly say, I mean, it's not feasible, but they say she should be president of the country when she's uh, done those kind of things. <coughs> so they do run risks um, because South Africa is a very violent country. And you can buy a life for you know, <laughs> not much money. So when there's so much crime, and lots of weapons around. So it is, it is dangerous and difficult. But there are people brave enough to, to stand up. Okay. Um, you mentioned that uh, you said Simona is facing 178 charges. Are those all from before he was president? Or yes. Were, yeah, and what, what are they? <coughs> they have to do with arms deals and whether he influenced a French company getting some contracts and promised them that if something happened, he would stand by them. And he was then deputy president. So, you know, he, he had some power and influence. They were never gone into in detail. Uh, when the things were about to happen, they said there was this conversation from one of the previous legal authorities with the possible prosecutor, and that created the, quote, corrupt practice of improper use and therefore they dropped all the charges. They decided not to proceed. But now the court has decided that the charges remain. So what will happen? No one really knows. Whether the, the people who are supposed to prosecute will do it now, or it will happen in two years or what. And that is what many people in the media also say, that you know, she, he would like to make sure that he has a successor who will not uh, bring him to book or protect him from the charges. But I'm not sure anybody can protect you. Of course, it's much better if someone is there who, you know, would do it, but I don't think they can. We have very strong uh, rule of law. We're very lucky with the institutions that they stand up, you know, to, to the government quite openly. Um, well, I was wondering if you could just break down the parliament for me, like the, the numbers. You said 20 of the ANC members, it looks like, went with the opposition. What is the actual... How oh, many, you are, <coughs> the, no, the ANC has a very big um, majority uh, <coughs> because in, uh, we had a vote of 198 to 177 with nine abstentions. So no one has ever questioned it. But now, uh, in the local elections, the ANC has lost Johannesburg, which is a municipality has lost Durban, which is also a very big one, and has lost a couple of others. So what has happened there is that the opposition parties got together and formed the uh, government. So 
in the country what's happening is that a lot of people who were lifelong supporters of the ANC for the first time are voting for others and also just not going to vote. Uh, some find it difficult to desert the ANC because of its historical role and so on. So this is the big crisis. So no one knows what's going to happen in the next election. The ANC will certainly lose its overall majority. So it will have about, uh, they say, 56%, 58%. But if it just loses a fraction of that, it will no longer hold the country together. So you will have different regional governments with different alignments. How many seats are there in the parliament in total? In total, 600 altogether, but uh, this is, if it's 198, four, 400 and something, sorry, 400 and something. Uh, but then we have a, uh, upper, we have a upper chamber which draws people in from the different provinces. So they have kind of an advisory, more or less like the House of Lords, but it doesn't work like the House of Lords, which can give an advisory role, can <coughs> look at bills and changes and so on. Um, but uh, I think this was a big shock to the ANC. There are about 20 of them uh, because of the secret vote and nine abstentions. So 29 went against, whereas before, not one, the first time. So there's a very big dent uh, <coughs> in official and, and kind of public. You don't know who they are, but you know that this happened to so many people. Sorry, I forgot. I should have done this before. But if you could also introduce yourself. Okay. <laughs> 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 sure. So my name is Alex. Um, <coughs> I'm from Canada. Uh, I my background is journalism. I worked as a reporter in Canada before I came here, and uh, I'm an international studies and diplomacy master student. Oh, okay. My name is Alicia. I'm also with ISD. Um, I'm from the Netherlands originally, and I did a BA in history, where I focused on ancient history and contemporary Africa and in South Africa. And also spent some time in South Africa last year, also when I was younger. So. Okay. Okay. Last I mean, I was. Thank you so much for the uh, I was thinking, you know, this this thread when you when we be talking about the relationship of private business or capital with political institutions, mm -hmm. and political development, and I think this whole example of Gupta's. And I'll request you to unpack it a little bit further because it resonates a lot with when I look at private business and political kind of, the term is used today as a nexus in India. Uh, and many kind of, you know, how, how, how political bartering actually happens using uh, corporate, how corporates kind of influence political positions, whether it's the Minister of Trade or Commerce or uh, coal ministries, because corruption is quite a big issue in India as well. But I'll go back into history to kind of chart this, This, you know, how do you see the evolution of ANC in the larger political landscape of South Africa when you compare it with that of the Indian National Congress <coughs> in India? Because here I see there is there are two, part, two kind of movements really. I mean, INC was equally a movement before it became a political party as such. Uh, and you've mentioned earlier during your session that they were there were kind of very serious kind of links and ANC was inspired and influenced by the Indian national movement. Indian, the Congress today is in a really, really difficult situation to the ex extent that no one expects it to kind of come back anytime soon to power. Like here is a Hindu right-wing national government mm. which has taken root, which is arguably getting even more strengthened. Mm. Uh, so there is a different concept of the idea of India, of the Hindu India, that has taken precedence today. Mm. So how do you compare this evolution 
uh, in the case of Africa, South Africa, where you say that in the next two years we don't know uh, who will come. So, so if you can kind of just give, you know, if you can do some comparisons, that will be of great interest, I mean, to me. And it could be great value to see how two countries, uh, which are actually quite very, I mean, there's very strong connections, uh, how the political kind of, you know, fate evolved, perhaps in tandem, perhaps there were divergences. You see, this is very important because uh, <coughs> if you look, <laughs> when we visit India, they often take us to see uh, all the various sites and play historical documents and Mahatma Gandhi's. And they say, well, here's the Indian uh, National Congress uh, Constitution. And we look at it and we say, no, it's based on the Natal Congress in South Africa. <laughs> Problem was, Gandhi had a role in writing both. <laughs> So, so we have a constitution before India had, okay, in the, the Congress. And the Congress had very strong links because of Gandhiji in particular. So, uh, that, that, and then the traditions continued. In our struggle for freedom, we always looked to uh, India to support us. I mean, I was in exile for 35 years or more. But whenever we went anywhere and if we needed any help or whatever, we'd go to the Indian Embassy or High Commission and say, hey, you know, we need help with this, that, and they would give it, they would give the help quite readily. So I worked very closely with, with many Indian government leaders, Commonwealth conferences, and so on. We got uh, help from them. So this uh, historical link between the Indian Congress and the African National Congress is rather important, and we have set up in Natal working as well as it should, a center to look at the nonviolent struggle in India and in South Africa. And uh, I haven't done much work with them, but I would like to, because what we can do is to look at that struggle, because, you see, that struggle, particularly in South Africa, has been an active nonviolent struggle. There are different kinds of pacifism. You can be a pacifist and do nothing. You know, you just sit, you say you're a pacifist. Uh, but in South Africa and in India, to be a pacifist, you had to engage in actual struggle and activities. So what are the lessons of that? And can we use nonviolence as a technique in today's world with so much violence around and nuclear weapons and so on? So it's a very important area to, to, to look at. We used to say at the time, you know, before, that uh, most of our people, the testimonies of our nonviolence is in our graveyards because people died uh, in it. The, uh, one little story, you see, uh, Nelson Mandela, when he was younger, was a real firebrand, and he felt that uh, you don't need to work with other racial groups because you should work with the ones that is the most oppressed, because they would be the strongest in fighting back. But then he saw that when uh, Africans, as he said, was not doing much, I mean, they were doing something, uh, Indian women and men were engaged in the passive resistance in 1946 and they would go to railway uh, stations where the other racial groups entrance and you go and break the law by going through there and they went through there and the police would stand with pick candles, you know, it's quite long and as you go, they would, they would literally crack skulls, you know, of people and then uh, Mandela said, but the Indian people are fighting when we are not doing very Who says that they are not? We have to work with them. Mm -hmm. So he had a, a conversion, and because we are racially divided in residence and all the rest of it, 
We had an Indian Congress. We had a Colored People's Congress. We had a small white Congress, people who supported Congress, and the African National Congress. So it was only later when the ANC was in exile that it formed one organization and everybody could join. But before that, we were all racially segregated, even in that. Because if we lived in an Indian area, we couldn't go and organize in the African area and so on. So I think this is a subject that needs to look at as to how it loses its idealism. Uh, I mean, the Indian Congress also has a lot of corruption, of course, subsequently. And so, and in Africa too, most of the liberation movements in Africa were very largely influenced by the ANC. And some of the leaders, Mugabe and others, they studied in South Africa, so they studied with African leaders there. So there too they've lost all the principles that they had. So we used to start, we started some years ago, meetings of the liberation movements. So we got from Mozambique, from um, Namibia, and so on, so that they could discuss these problems, to say, how do you keep it? But how do you decide what somebody's going to believe? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, greed is a very difficult thing to handle. And in South Africa, I think we made a mistake in having uh, nine provinces, because when you look at each province, uh, the Ministry of Health has a central budget, but it uh, works it out through each of the provinces. So it's a lot of money. When that money goes there, we don't have enough accountants or auditors or whatever to monitor them. So it's open for corruption. And many people go to ANC meetings and other meetings to be elected so that they can get a tender. Because the tenders are worth a lot of money. You get a tender for a contract and sometimes people don't even uh, find out whether you've done your work. And uh, you, know, you lose that. So I think the idealism and the principles that were there in the Indian Congress, which influenced many others, and the African National Congress, which influenced the continents, uh, are now questionable. And we don't know whether we'll be able to sustain it. I'm told by, I mean, I have some friends in uh, East Africa. One is a former president. He works with me in the Nyerere Foundation. And uh, he says, be careful. You know what you people do because you're affecting other African countries who also looked upon South Africa. As to, I mean, the joy in the African continent when Mandela was released was just you could feed it wherever you went. You know? uh, so I think that that belief by young people in honesty, in decency, in doing the right thing, uh, is under threat. But is under threat globally. Same with India. But you know, you know, this this whole aspect of I mean, corruption is a very is a, it's a complicated you know mm-hmm. multi layered. How how you view it? Uh, you know, there are differences. So I'm not going to go into kind of debating uh, that. But at a at a systemic level, at the level of the government, with at the level of big business, and I think this is tied to the other issue of Guptas. Um, in India, there are Ambani's and Adani's and Tata's, and I mean Tata's have been generally clean, but there were there were moments of doubt. Uh, this whole idea of corrupting a movement's idealism because private business, and because there's a nexus that has been created between one or two political interest holders, like in the case of South Africa, President Zuma, or in the case of uh, India, they have even kind of you know raised questions about the Gandhi family. Uh, do you think it's a lot to do with the institutional kind of incapacity to change and this whole desire to do ease of business and kind of allow private capital and you know, privatization to kind of flourish without 
excessive checks and balances, that the answer lies within uh, the regulatory uh, frameworks that the state has rather than mm-hmm. in, because, I mean, how do you see that issue? Because you can blame, you can, let's assume for a moment that <coughs> President Zuma has, is, is impeached or is just out of power and all the, you know, all the charges are proven correct, he's convicted, X, Y, Z, but the thing is that the problem remains. Zuma might go, and this is a similar problem that we are facing in India, that Congress is out of power, corruption is still there, with, even with the BJP government. Uh, and, you know, so, so how do you see that hap- uh, kind of yeah. evolving in the case of South Africa? You see, there's another side about South Africa that I have not spoken about, and that is that the South African business community has always been corrupt. And it's partly because they had to fight sanctions. So you got a lot of sleaze money to bribe people, to do deals, arrange it. So when I joined the government, I was in exile before that, so I wasn't in the country, but when I joined the government, I said, you know, a lot of our people, black people, and black, we meant all dark people who didn't have the vote, that black people are learning the worst habits from the whites. So they were experts at bribery. So they taught everybody or did everything. And the international institutions uh, did recognize South Africa as being among the most corrupt at that time. So it's not something that's just come. It was there. But then you had this counterforce of the moral movement. Okay, We've got to put uh, standards on it. So it raises issues of good governance. How do you really institutionalize good governance and, and work to that? And then the other thing I told you, if I go to an ANC conference now, Many people want to join something or other because they think that if they join that, they'll get a contract. It's no longer the belief. And at one of the ANC conferences some years ago, 80% of the people present were all new members of the ANC. So they had not been in the movement. They don't know its history. They don't know its struggle credentials or anything. They've just gone in there so they can also get a contract. Or if you get a local municipality, you know, you can... Uh, dish it out. Guptas is not just influencing, you see. What they did was they got so deeply into the political process that they could make changes in ministries. They could arrange that if they liked somebody who would help them to milk the state, that guy must become a minister. Mm. So this Van Royen was one of the, uh, you know, (laughs) supporters in that sense. So when he was made minister for less than two days, this was the idea, and and they had offered it. They had offered the job to people before the job was available. So this is a very strong position to be in. Would you like to have a post of finance minister? You know, and the Guptas are dishing it out, and they were dishing out a lot of other favors. And they often knew about decisions that Zuma was going to take well before he took them. So a lot of this has come out in the emails now. So people are not. Uh, uh, I mean. Guptas have a rather difficult life in South Africa because they can't run bank accounts. They can't, they, they've got a lot of money in Dubai and there are reports that they've even taken physically cash in planes, you know, and gone to Dubai. They'll put it in there. And that uh, they may not be able to survive in South Africa for very long. Are there any other groups that you, who, I mean, it seems based on what you say that the Guptas financially, I mean, there's corporate competition, right? So if you kind of uh, superimpose the map or the dynamics of corporate competition with that of political competition. Mm-hmm. Who are the other players? Because Gupta seems to be, they'll be out soon. I think this Gupta, Zuma, Zupta, kind of, as you mentioned, 
from what it seems to be, unless they go really violent, as Alex's point of you know really using coercion, Colombian style, you go and you start killing people. Uh, unless that happens, their livelihood seems to be. I mean, their shelf life is very limited right now. So who is likely to replace? Because both political groups will require money. Are there other groups? And which other political grouping, apart from ANC, would you think have a best shot? And what are their belief structures? Are they coalescing people around uh, racial lines? Or is there another kind of, you know, is it uh, more regional, that this is actually a regional uh, party which has, you know, which has a good kind of good governance possibility in one particular area, let's say Durban, for example, and they are coming out. So, so what's the nature of that? You see, we have uh, other phenomena in the country. One is that they are now talking of people who had always captured the state before. They are the big white companies, tobacco barons and others, and diamonds. Uh, so uh, there is now a movement among many young black people who are misled by Gupta agents to say you must target white monopoly capital. So it's a campaign in South Africa, white monopoly capital. Then it says you must have rapid economic development. So if you have a, a very quick transformation is a word they use. So you work for transformation of economic power for Africans. Once again, it opens up <laughs> the area for you to say this one must be supported, this one must be supported, and that one. So that's become a political slogan as well. Are you, are you for economic transformation? Are you going on like that? The other tragedy is that uh, after the democratic elections, if you take population by racial uh, category, the white population has done best compared to any other group in the country. So they had sanctions removed. They had international trade opened up. And they did the best. Mm you find that uh, fewer whites voted for President Mandela than for President Becky. So Mandela, with all his credentials, there was an election, number of white people who voted for him were fewer than the white people who voted for President Becky, because he gave stability to the country and they had confidence and they could make more money. They saw already that they could make money. So even today, the white population is still holding a vast amount of economic you could say something like 80% of the economy is in the control of that. Now, we have affirmative action policies okay, that uh, if you employ so many staff, a uh, percentage should be Indian, percentage African, and so on. All that's being violated. One of the mistakes, uh, so people say, that we made was that we categorized people who were previously disadvantaged. Right. Okay. So now, one uh, group that was previously disadvantaged is white women. Now young African men are saying, no, this is wrong. Because if there's a job which should go to an African or an Indian or somebody, they employ a white woman. Ah. So they're overcoming it because in the white community they still keep the resources there. It's in the same family. So we must remove white women from that. Now the ANC was very idealistic at the time. There was a lot of discrimination against women so on, say so no, we mustn't allow you know this to continue. We must give them a leg up as well. But this is this is actually true if you look at it. So there is very little uh, unemployment among white people. Uh, some complain. I mean, there is a movement of migration too. They want to go to Australia or Canada 
or out of the country to New Zealand or somewhere uh, because they're fearful of uh, crime and they don't want to bring up their families in a country with so much violence. Uh, violence is a big uh, preoccupation of, of that group. And then at the same time, all these political things that are, that are going on. So there are differences, but it's very difficult to, to, to home in on it in a national sense because we have all these racial things and leftovers from before and the powers from before. So if you do something even with good intentions, you can fall into the trap of appearing as if you're supporting racism again, yeah. you know, and you don't want to target them. So the Guptas have, uh, it's, not, you see, it's not just that they have this power, they have created individuals who are dependent on them for money. So there are people inside the ANC who have been given favors, right. so they've become through that uh, Gupta supporters. And uh, this is the big danger, that you get corrupt like this. Now, the one thing that you can do in most developing countries is if that happens with finances, and more difficult when it gets to drugs. Mm -hmm. Because when those things get in, they capture the government immediately, <laughs> like Latin America and so on. So we have to avoid that. So we also have quite a population that is beginning to uh, use drugs. So we get crime, drugs, uh, you know, prostitution. So the, the challenges are very, 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 very great like that. And at the same time, poverty, unemployment, young kids coming out of school, no jobs. No jobs at all. So how we will overcome it? I mean, uh, we, we don't know. We have to concentrate on good governance issues. Yeah. We just have to, no choice. And uh, the question is whether we will have the kind of moral leadership to be able to do it across uh, the board. You see, stories come out now. Because of all this corruption, people come out and say, hey, you know, this uh, big company that existed in 94, 95, they were found to have smuggled X amount of money and got the bank's uh, central bank to allow them to use that money. And that money was uh, earned wrongfully. Mm -hmm. So you must take that away from them. So that raises all kinds of questions of how can the state take money away from companies, you know, and yeah. also when you don't sue them or go to court. Yeah. So it's a lot of instability around and, and, and fights between different groups, which is a pity. But we do have, we're lucky, we have these institutions and we have some people who are quite brave, who are taking, I mean, this uh, former finance minister, uh, he's got a long history in the struggle. So people respect him, although he's Indian, he's from minority group, right? But Africans, others, they respect him enormously because of what he's done in the liberation struggle. But what happens in 10, 15 years when these people are elderly or don't live any longer, then who do you go to to show the credentials of people? So I think we're going to go through a very difficult time unless we concentrate on good governance and can get the proper systems in place. Yeah, I was just wondering about the history again, sorry. No. <laughs> um, the non-violent struggle, where does Nkwonto was seized, what fit into the picture, and how did the ANC, the, 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 the non-Nkwonto was the part, few Nkwonto was seized for? No, Nkwonto was seized where it was set up in 1961 by the ANC, and they put Mandela at the, the head of it, 
and of course they were all arrested and later there was trial in 63. But the problem was that at the, up to that time we were non-violent. And as Mandela said, he was the head of the Mkonto, he said the problem is that we, we continue to give the other cheek. We just get killed and get no results, so we have to put a stop to it. If you look at the actual uh, activities, there was not that much violence from Africans against the state. There were odd cases of sabotage, where an electricity pylon would be blown up, uh, there were one or two cases where you had, <coughs> well, maybe more than one or two, but one or two quite famous ones, where you had somebody taking a bomb in a restaurant, something, so a few people get killed as a result of that. Uh, we had one white South African who was so frustrated that he joined the African resistance, as he called it, a separate organization. He went to a railway station, put a bomb. He was executed when they found out who he was and so on. So Umkonto Esizwe was really more symbolic and more gave a posture that we are not going to accept you killing us all the time. We are also going to return. And we will have targets, military targets. For example, we had a nuclear facility that was blown up. But that relied on very good intelligence. So it was blown up just before it went critical. <laughs> you know. So that intelligence was there. So there are some records of that kind of activity because the emphasis Oliver Tambo put, we, Oliver Tambo would have been 100 years old uh, this year, and he is a great leader. He was 30 years president of the ANC in exile, and he built up the whole movement in that. And uh, he said that we will fight, but we will not try to kill innocent lives. So I have been in meetings where uh, Africans would say to him, look, uh, we have these racial areas, so if I'm black and I'm in a white area and I go and blow up something, there'll be roadblocks everywhere. So they'll catch me. But it's better for me to kill some of the whites around the area so they won't be able to come after me. And the ANC said, no, you can't kill innocent people. And you must try and save lives. You can have bombs. So they had a lot of frustration. They said, but you know, we're committing suicide because we're engaging in armed struggle, but we make ourselves victims. We'll get caught <laughs> this way. But Oliver Tambo always said, no. No innocent people should be, and a possible life should not be lost. You can uh, attack uh, a facility and so on. So that was very difficult in the, in the liberation struggle. So Mkonto Esizwe did not have a big uh, armed engagement. Uh, against the government in, in terms of its military and so on. They just hit that few targets and uh, created fear uh, among the white population that they were under threat. So they did not want to turn the other cheek. Zimbabwe was different and Namibia. Uh, Namibians put up a very tough fight against the South Africans actually. One of the best and it's not been publicized uh, that much but they put up a very good struggle against it. Because South Africans had 100,000 troops in Namibia, which is a small country or a small population. So you have to look at the liberation struggle in the wider context. And then, of course, Zimbabwe struggled to affect it. And Mozambique. And then the other thing is countries like Mozambique, Zambia, and so on, they were bombed by the South Africans. So they suffered <laughs> because of our struggle more than we did sometimes, <coughs> uh, you know, because they were being punished for it.
Pastor Mindy, thank you so much for that really, really in-depth kind of uh, you know, perspective into South African politics and its larger regional and global kind of interlinkages. <laughs> <laughs>